are going to be in Acts chapter 2, the end of Acts chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. And we don't do this all the time, but sometimes it's, uh, it's appropriate to do it. Would you stand with me as we read from the Word of God this morning? Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. So those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Please be seated. We have started this new sermon series in the book of Acts. I'm enjoying it. It's challenging. It's fun. Acts is an exciting book. God's doing powerful things throughout, through, through this new entity that's come into being, the church. Uh, and so last week we looked at the first part of Acts. We looked at the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we said two things. First of all, that this is the day that the church was born, and that's what it means that, the, that, they were, that the people were baptized with the Spirit. It was the beginning of the church. They received that initial portion of the Spirit, and now they could experience His ongoing ministry to them. And each time a new person trusts, repents, and trusts in faith in Jesus, they also receive the Holy Spirit. But the second thing that happened was this filling of the Spirit. And we suggested that that the filling of the Spirit is the normal Christian life, to have this this inpouring of the Spirit on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, in small ways, in bigger ways for special occasions. But we noted specifically that the filling of the Spirit was linked to the preaching, the proclamation of the good news about Jesus, all the way through the book of Acts. And so it is an exciting moment. And we get to this passage at the end of chapter 2. And we begin to see what the early church looked like, how they functioned. And the question that I found myself asking, found myself asking after last week was, so what exactly, if we're meant to be ongoing, filled with the Spirit in a continuous way, and that's the command in Ephesians chapter 5, go on being filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? life of a local church? What does a spirit-filled local church look like? That was the question, because as, as, as your pastor, that's my desire for each of you individually and for us together as a body of believers, is that we would be filled with the Spirit, that we wouldn't be a dead, dull church, but that we would be alive, vibrant, excited to be together, growing with the Lord. What does look like to be a spirit-filled church. You'll notice in this passage there are some things which we don't do right off the bat. Have you noticed that we don't all live together in one big house? 
Have you noticed that? We don't do that. I call that the Christian conference experience. We go away for a week sometimes. Sometimes we do a church retreat, and we're all together. And, 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 and you know, Frank down the hall has forgotten his toothbrush, and I happen to have a spare one. He says, Tim, I'll give it all. So I give him my spare toothbrush, and, 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 and someone else's kids forgot their pajamas, and we have extra, and we, we share things for now. We're all living together, one building. But guess what? At the end of the week, we all go home and sometimes we're very happy not to be living next to each other anymore. And sometimes we miss it a little bit as well, because conference experiences are good, they're good times, they're powerful times. But can I suggest to you that what we see here in Acts chapter 2 at the end is, is not the norm. It's not the norm for church life. Because, you see, Pentecost was one of those feasts that everybody, Jews and and, and those who were not Jewish by birth would have converted to Judaism, prosel, proselytes, prosel, proselytes. I feel like I'm forgetting a letter there somewhere. They all you had to come to Jerusalem for this feast, and so the, the, the population of Jerusalem at times of the feast, they swelled. And all of a sudden, all these people are becoming Christians, and they're getting together, and, but they're not home. There's lots of them who don't live in Jerusalem, and so... They have, they're taking care of one another in this early picture of what the church looks like. And so the key for us this morning is we want to draw out the principles. Because there are principles at work here that apply to us. But the exact circumstances, that's not normal. It's a, it's a conference experience in that sense. And so that's the question I want to answer this morning and dig into a little bit. Is what does a spirit-filled church look like? And the first thing, we can make four observations I want to make. The first thing is this. It's really obvious. The Spirit-filled church is full of Spirit-filled disciples. The Spirit-filled church is full. It's brimming with Spirit-filled disciples. And there's three observations I want to make about those Spirit-filled disciples. There are Spirit-filled disciples who believe. Spirit-filled disciples who belong and spirit-filled disciples who become. They believe, they believe, they belong, and they become. Let's deal with that first statement. The spirit-filled church is full of spirit-filled disciples. You'll notice in verse 41, it says, Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. That phrase, received his word, that shorthand for they heard what Peter had said, and they repented, they turned away from what they had trusted previously, and they started having faith in Jesus. They received his word. And therefore, because they had repented and trusted Jesus, the implication then is that they were they had received the gift of the Spirit. And as Paul, as Peter says later on in the book of Acts, oh, you've, you've believed, you've trusted, you've received the gift of the Spirit, therefore you should receive water baptism. And that's the next thing in verse 41. They received his word, and therefore they were baptized. The implication is they have the Holy Spirit inside them. That's what... Baptism is shorthand for. Because there's two realities when you trust Jesus. Remember, we go back over this just briefly again. Baptism always has someone who's doing the baptism, someone who gets baptized, something you're baptized with, and a result. 
So if I can go over here on this side, I can't walk away from the mic, but if I could, I would walk over here. When you trust Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. You're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit into the universal church, sometimes called the invisible church because we can't see it. Because it's all Christians since Pentecost all over the place in the time. Baptism in the Spirit. And the parallel with that is that you're baptized with water baptism. Water is the thing you get baptized with. And the result of water baptism is that you're part of the local church. And so that's why all that Luke tells us here is that they were baptized with water. The implication is they have the Holy Spirit. They're part of the universal church, part of the local church as well. And you'll notice then that they were therefore added. It's the divine passage. There were added. Who did be added? Who, who did be added? The Lord did be added. Who tells us that at the end of verse 47? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In verse 41, it's so. So they were added. As a result of Peter's preaching, they were added, but it was God who did it. What a wonderful picture we have between verse 41, as a result of Peter's preaching, they were added, and then in verse 47, the Lord added. Because the reality is, the spirit-filled church that is full of spirit-filled disciples gets to participate in this mission of seeing disciples added. More disciples. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We sow, we water, but it's the Lord who makes it grow. He makes that, that, that seed of faith grow in a person's life. And so friends, the spiritual church that is full of spirit-filled disciples is implicitly evangelistic. Even though it's the Lord who did it, it's clear that they were involved in the process of evangelism. In fact, we'll talk about it more later, but in verse 46, they went to the temple together. And actually, a number of times we see the apostles attending the temple throughout the book of Acts. It wasn't for service. It was for evangelism. They performed healings. They preached about Jesus. The church is implicitly evangelistic. It's implicitly going out, not necessarily trying to get people in, but going out to find those who don't know Jesus. But we need to be about that as well. It's one of the marks of the Spirit-filled church. It's full of Spirit-filled disciples. It's an outward-looking, outward-seeking church. Who needs to hear about Jesus? Where are they? Where are they? The reality is that we need to be sharing our faith regularly. Share faith in obedience like Peter, like the disciples, like the early church, and leave the rest of the Lord because it's He who makes it grow. But that sounds scary. I don't know if, if you can relate to this, but I've had a number of opportunities to share faith, and I've let it go. I've, 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 I've let it pass. I had a friend who said to me one time, we were studying music in university, and he said, oh, what are you, what are you doing on, on, on Sunday? We were doing this thing. And I said, I, I, I've got music rehearsal. I could have said, sorry, man, I'm in church. 
I was tired of being identified as a Christian, as a pastor's kid. There were other times when I, 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 I flaunted it and I said, yeah, I'm a pastor's kid. What does that mean? Oh, French people have all kinds of questions about pastor's kids because it's a Catholic country and priests don't have wives. So how can you be a priest's child? That doesn't make sense. But that one I let go. I was like, oh, evangelism is it, it, reaching out to friends, reaching out to people we don't know. It's hard. It's scary. But it's a mark of health, friends. It's a mark of the healthy church. This also changes a little bit, and we're going to dive into this later, what we, how we perceive what the local church is. It's not just an institution. It's an organism. It's a living, growing thing. People were added day by day. Others were sent out. The church is alive. It's not a dead institution. It's got some institutional things about it. But the local church is an organism. It's a living, growing thing. That means it matures. That means it should grow as well. That means it should reproduce as church planting. That's why we make a big deal about church planting. The early church was filled, full of spirit-filled disciples who were busy making more disciples. What did those spirit-filled disciples believe? That's the second thing. They're spirit-filled disciples who believe. They believe, they belong, and they become. They believe. They believe something specific. If you look with me in verse 42, it says all of these new disciples, it says what they began to do together. And they devoted themselves to two things. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship. We're going to get to the fellowship in a second. But the apostles' teaching, this is about what they believe. And remember, these are spirit-filled. This is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Spirit-filled disciples believe the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. That's what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit three times in John 14, in John 15, in John 16. When the spirit of truth comes, when you become a Christian, when you start to follow Jesus, you don't check, we don't check our brain at the door. No, our minds, as well as our hearts and our emotions and the strength of our hands are fully engaged with the Lord. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was an authoritative and an authentic teaching as well. If you look in verse 43, we're going to come back to this verse in a minute. But it says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In verse 22 of chapter 2, Peter says that Jesus' ministry was authenticated by signs and wonders and miracles. In the same way, the apostles' teaching and ministry was authenticated, was given authority by the signs and wonders that they were doing. So this isn't just any teaching that the local church is devoting itself to in Jerusalem. It's the apostles. It's an authoritative. It's an authentic Teaching. It is the very word of God about Jesus Christ. Peter sums it up really well in his sermon. 
in the middle of chapter 2. Let me just sum up what that apostle's teaching, because this is a, this is a set core, is a set of doctrines of beliefs that, that, that the local church subscribed to. The apostles had very specific things that they preached about, and it all centered around Jesus. Let's just look very briefly at Peter's sermon, starting in chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, he says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders. Jesus is the centerpiece of the apostles' teaching. Jesus of Nazareth, as Peter calls him. He is Christ. He is the Messiah. And he is Lord. He is God himself, Yahweh, the God-man. Jesus is the centerpiece of the apostles' teaching and of what the early church believed. Specifically, three events in Jesus' life. His death in verse 23. And his resurrection in verse 24. I love that verse. It was not possible for him to be held by death. So his hands were loosed. And he was risen. He was raised from the dead. His death, his resurrection, and thirdly, his exaltation at the right hand of the Father, down in verse 33. Three events. His death, his resurrection, his exaltation. Peter makes reference to two witnesses. He says in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you as you yourselves know. Peter references common history. What was historical fact? As you yourselves know, you saw, you heard, you've seen it. We've written about it. History as well as eyewitnesses. He says, Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. There are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection. It's not folly to believe that he is alive here, now, in heaven, ruling at the right hand of God, by his spirit in us. Someone say amen, please. Two witnesses. This is not a belief, a religion with no foundation. It's rooted in history. There's eyewitnesses who testify to it in this book. Two promises. Jesus promises the forgiveness of sins. That's verse 38. The forgiveness of sins and the giving the promised Holy Spirit. In verse 39. Two witnesses, two promises, two conditions as well. Repentance and faith, which is indicated by baptism. That's what what Peter says in 38. The men who are listening are cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. In other words, repent, have faith, be baptized, because baptism is is the symbol of you have faith. You trust in Jesus and you're not trusting something else anymore. Three events, death, resurrection, exaltation. Two witnesses, two promises, two conditions. That is the apostolic teaching in a nutshell in Peter's sermon. 
And you'll remember that the church is now full of baby Christians, new disciples. And that's why Peter says in his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word so that you can grow up into maturity if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Long for the pure spiritual milk. That teaching, who Jesus is, and it's fleshed out in the whole of the New Testament, is what new disciples need. It's what they long for. I had a friend who became a Christian when I was in college. I had the privilege of praying with him. And he read the New Testament voraciously. It was a beautiful thing to see. In fact, it convicted me. He started an online Facebook group, a book a week and two for the long ones. <laughs> and he can help do it. And he motivated about 30 other people to come do it with him. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, says Peter. That's what new disciples need. That's what we need as well. What does that mean for us? That's what the, the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Can I, can I suggest to you that churches that twist the apostles' teaching, that, that, that distort it, that stray from it, that believe it but don't teach it or preach it, are not vibrant, empowered, healthy, spirit-filled churches. It, it's not popular to be faithful to this book in our day, in our society. But if we want to be a healthy, spirit-filled church, we have to trust that it is reliable, that it is the word of the living God we hold in our hands. We don't worship it. It's how we know who Jesus is. And so we value it because it reveals Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, to us. That's why we've tried to capture some of this in our core values. They're on our website. Our first three core values are these. We want to be Christ-centered. The Epistle teaching is about Jesus. It's Christ-centered. We want to be shaped by Scripture. Because this is the most reliable way to know who God is in Jesus Christ. And we want to be gospel-driven. We want to long to grow in knowledge of the gospel, to see it mature in our lives, to see others one to the gospel. Friends, are you in love with the God of the Bible? If you know Jesus, you find here. Do you value your time that you spend here? Do you spend time here? There's no guilt in the sense that you don't have to do it. Some people do it every day. Some people do it every couple days. But do you spend time here? Do you find that you can come before it and just let down all the filters and just soak it in? I love that feeling. I'm exhausted. And I'm tired. And I open it and it's like, I can, I can drop all my filters, all the stuff I'm talking to, to any other people, when I'm reading or watching something else. And I have filters and trying to know what's the same. Just come and drink. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We need to be people of the word. Are you a person of the word? Are you a disciple who believes? If you're with us today, if you're watching online, and you say, I'm not sure what I believe. I'm I'm interested, I'm watching, I'm here because I'm curious. I don't have a sense that I believe something. Can I suggest to you that actually it's not a question of 
believing or not believing. It's a question of what you believe, what you trust. Because everybody trusts something. Sounds familiar, I've said it before. Everyone trusts something. If you're an atheist, you trust science. You trust that there really isn't a God out there. If you're a Hindu, you trust whichever Hindu God you trust. If you're a Muslim, you trust Allah. If you're a Christian, you trust Jesus. The question is what you trust. Everybody trusts something. And my testimony this morning, stand before you, is that I trust Jesus. I think he's worth trusting because there's no one else, there's no other religious system out there, our secular system can't do it, that can satisfy that can provide purpose, that can provide security, eternal security, not just here and now, that can provide community, that can provide true unity, like Jesus does. And so if you're with us this morning saying, I don't know what I believe, can I encourage you to do two things? Discover who Jesus is. Make it your mission to find out who he is, to understand. And secondly, ask him to reveal himself to you. He likes to do that. He likes to show people who he is. Jesus, I don't know if you're there, but show me if you're there. Show me if you are. I dare you to pray that prayer. It's worth it. The Spirit, the Spirit filled disciples are disciples who believe. They're also disciples who belong. You'll notice that they, just, they devoted themselves in verse 42 to two things, the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. To fellowship. And, and again, they're spirit-filled. They're filled with the Spirit. That fellowship is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. It, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I pray that you would know the fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship, that, that, that community, that sense of we're family. That's the best definition I know of, fe- of fellowship is that we have the sense that we're family. That might sound strange to say, because we're a young church, we're a baby church. We don't know each other very well. I think I've known Anne and Frank the longest, aside from my own family, in this room. We've only known each other for 18 months. So we're a new family, but it's that that deepening sense of, yeah, we belong to one another as we belong to Jesus. They devoted themselves to Fellowship. You turn with me in 1 John chapter 3. Sorry, chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4. 1 John chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. Notice what the Apostle John says. He says, That which we proclaim, and what he proclaimed is what they've seen and heard and are eyewitnesses of. He says, That which we proclaim. We proclaim also to you. So that you too may have what? Fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Christ Jesus. So the fellowship that they devoted themselves to was fellowship with one another in Christ, but was also with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, says the Apostle John. There's a, this morning, right now, there's a three-way relationship going on between us, one another, and between God the Father and Jesus Christ. We have fellowship 
with one another. What does that fellowship involve? Luke tells us in the second half of verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship through the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread, the early church ate together a lot. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But this phrase, the breaking of bread, has a specific reference to the Lord's Supper. It was instituted by Jesus himself. It was a reinterpreted Passover. The guts on that guy. He must have known who he was or something to reinterpret a whole Passover. The new covenant. We celebrate that together. I suspect that the early church did it as part of their love feasts, their communal meals. We call it bring and share, perhaps. We've separated it out from that. I'm not sure that's a good thing or a bad thing. But they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. They celebrated the new covenant, the covenant of grace. We're no longer under the law, but we're under grace by what Christ Jesus has done, by his death on the cross. But it's also a way of celebrating our unity together. We we lose this a little bit in our Western culture. But in other cultures, eating together is a sign of unity. A sign of, I accept you. You accept me me. We're family. And so as we, when we partake of the elements, we're going to do it again next week, when we partake of the elements together, we are saying, yes, I'm family with you. Each of you. And you're saying that about me. That's why Paul makes a big deal about making sure that you're right with each other when you come to the communion table. They celebrate the communion together. And then they pray together. That's what we've just done this morning. Can I tell you, my heart is gladdened when I hear the voices around the tables praying for one another, praying for our city, for our world. It's an expression, it's a practical expression of that fellowship we have with one another and with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever tried to pray with someone that you don't get along with? Spouses know about this. Try and pray with your spouse when you're having a spat. It's a good thing for spouses to pray together. It's a good thing for believers to pray together. And as an aside, if you have someone you're struggling with unforgiveness for, stop praying for that person. I have someone who's a dear friend. They experience severe heartbreak, painful for ministry and churches. And they started praying for those people who hurt them. Couldn't even do it by name at the beginning. And over time, God worked forgiveness in their hearts. Started praying for them by name. Started praying good things for them as well. Not just help me forgive those people. Prayer is a, is a practical way that we live out that unity together. We want to be a prayer-dependent church. That's another of our core values. That's why we pray together. So we pray from the front. That's why we pray in our, 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 our prayer meeting, our small group, as men, as women, together. Are you a person of prayer? Because remember, the Spirit-filled church is not an institution. It is the Spirit-filled disciples who make it up. And so we will only be a church, a church of prayer if we are also people of prayer. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
In a sense, all of those things are the spiritual fellowship they devoted themselves to. But you'll notice in verse 44 and 45 that they also devoted themselves to practical fellowship. Because the word fellowship also has that connotation through the New Testament. All who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Sometimes certain theologians look at this and go, ah, finally, an argument for communism. Mm, not so much. Remember, this is this is a unique situation. Con- Christian conference situation. This is not the norm. We're not, this is not a call for all of us to live together. I mean, if you think that's true, then by all means, go find some other Christians and live together if you can convince them. The principle here is that they cared for one another as any had need. They considered that everything they had been given, financial, material, any blessings that they had, spiritual or otherwise, were all given to them by God. And as a result, they were open-handed with what they had. They said, thank you, Lord, I've got this. I'm not going to close my hand and put it in my pocket. No, I'm going to hold it out here where you can use it. They were generous. They were generous. I don't necessarily like this teaching because I'm a naturally stingy person. My wife will tell you that I don't like I don't even like spending money on myself. I hate spending money. I like it sitting in my bank account. It's nice and safe. I have security. Is that too honest? But the challenge here is that, again, as we have fellowship, we look at one another and we say, Oh, family. 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 We take care of family. We know that on a human level. We take care of family. It's just what you do. But we need to believe and practice that at a spiritual level as well. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17 puts it this way. 1 John chapter 3 verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in you? If I'm standing singing with my hand raised and my eyes closed, and I'm I'm experiencing it's church, it's wonderful, but my brother next to me, and I know it as well, is going hungry, is in financial trouble, is having family issues, and I'm and I don't even care. Oh, there's something wrong there, says John. There's something deeply wrong there. We can't have fellowship with our Heavenly Father, with the Lord Jesus, if we are not caring for one another because we are all children of God. It's a spiritual and it's a practical fellowship. What does that mean for us? Can I throw out two things for you this morning? Can I challenge you to adopt that mindset that everything you have, your car, your house, your bank account, all of those things, those were given to you by the Lord, and He's given to them to use you to bless others. I'm not saying you need to go and give all of your money away. That's not what I'm saying. You need to go give your car away. That's not what I'm saying. 
He's given those things to you. They are blessings. He wants you to enjoy them. And he also wants you to serve him with them. Can I challenge you to adopt that mentality today? This morning. And second, more practically, invite someone over for lunch. A student. Ash. Students love to be invited for lunch. But we're hoping we have more students at some point. Invite them around for lunch. That's not just the pastor's job. I'm not a step ahead, a step above spiritually. We're equals in Christ Jesus. Invite someone over for lunch. Perhaps there's someone in need who's part of our body. As, as the, when that happens, we'll make that meal known. Or someone else, you know, you can take a meal to them. Fellowship in Christ. The Spirit-filled church is full of Spirit-filled disciples who believe who belong, and lastly, who become. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms the believer. Jesus promised that in Acts chapter 8, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, and the Spirit will come upon you in power. And that was a transformation, boy. Pentecost happened, and all of a sudden the disciples are different. They were transformed. We see that in Galatians chapter 2, chapter 5, sorry. The fruit of the Spirit. Look at that, those, those, those eight, nine fruits. It's one fruit with lots of different applications. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Did I miss any? There you go. I knew I missed one. I was missed one. Goodness. Oh, it's the best one as well. It's transformation. He makes those things come out of us. They're becoming different. They're becoming transformed. Two ways that they are becoming transformed. We see that transformation in this passage. The first is in verse 43. I'm running a little long. Stick with me. And awe came upon every soul, says says Luke. Awe came upon every soul because of the signs and wonders, the power that was being manifested through the apostles. They had a sense that God was at work in their midst. I hope, it's my prayer, that you have a sense that God is at work in our midst as a local church. That you have a sense that He's at work when we sing together, when we we come to the Word together, when we come to the table together, when we're in smaller groups in our homes, when we're just ones and twos meeting outside. You have a sense that God is at work. Remember, we said previously that the signs and wonders are specifically about authenticating the apostles' ministry. That's apostles, capital A, big A. The ones who were with Jesus and Paul who met him on the Damascus Road. We don't have the apostles with us any longer. Not in that sense. We still have, apostle means one who is sent. We still have people who are sent, who have the gift of being sent. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. But we don't have the authority, the authority of the apostles who are with Jesus with us anymore. And so what are we meant to do with this passage? Because they were the one who did the signs and wonders. Can I suggest to you two things? The first is that this is not a passage, because we don't have the apostles with us anymore. This isn't a passage that we can use to talk about whether miracles and healings and those kind of things happen in the midst of the church today. There are other passages that deal with that. This is not one. I'm not saying miracles do or don't happen, but this isn't a passage that we can use 
to make that conclusion. Does that make sense? Because this is about the apostles. And these apostles are no longer around. The key here is that awe came upon every soul because of the power of the Spirit at work. How do we then Because I think the principle is we need to have a sense that God is at work. How do we experience His power now? Can I suggest to you that the first thing is through those two things that the disciples devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching and fellowship. When we come together around the Word of God, when we say it to each other, speak it, teach it, preach it, sing it, we will have the sense that God is at work. He's present. And we experience that. We need to devote ourselves to it. The second really practical way is actually through transformation in our lives. There is no greater testament to the power of the Spirit to transform, to to convict and bring to faith and shape faith and grow faith and transform into a new person There's no greater evidence of His power. And so when we share testimonies, when we hear of how God is at work, when we see that in our midst, when we see new disciples coming in, man, I'm praying for that day when we have someone who has believed for the first time and joins us in our family gathering. Can you imagine the joy? Yes, we've got people we're praying for. We've got people we meet in the street on Mondays. Let's keep praying in that sense because we want to experience that power. The third thing, lastly, is that you'll notice that the filling of the Spirit is always geared towards the preaching, the proclamation of who Jesus is. Sometimes, I think, and I've experienced this in my own life, that's probably where I got the idea from, that we don't experience the Spirit, the Spirit's fullness in our own lives because we haven't risked enough. We haven't risked in proclaiming Jesus' name. Because the reality is, friends, we don't need anything. We live in a secular society that provides everything we need. On a practical way, even on a spiritual way, people find spirituality all over the place. And so sometimes we don't experience the fullness of the Spirit because we haven't stepped out in faith and said, Lord, I can't do this. You're calling me to this, but... I am not up to the task. And he says, Oh, my son, my daughter, I have something for you. My spirit. And that's what we see throughout Acts, is they stepped out in faith. They were filled with the spirit. If we want to experience his power in our lives, we need to live by faith, truly by faith. We need to walk the walk, friends. We need to walk the walk. They were becoming aware experiencing the presence of the living God. The second thing that they were becoming, the second way that they were becoming, is that they were involved in a new lifestyle. Verses 46 and 47. There's three things about this lifestyle. It was an active. It says day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread. It's an active lifestyle. It's not just, they're not just Sunday Christians. They're not just once a week Christians. Actually, not even a whole day. It's a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. It's every day. Day by day. 
not together all day. You notice that they came together day by day, either in the temple or in one another's homes as family households. And so wherever we're at, whether we're together, whether we're gathered together, whether we're scattered about our various activities throughout the week, there's this pattern of gathering and scattering, but it's an everyday, it's an active lifestyle. You don't come and worship Jesus on Sunday, and then it's dormant the rest of the week. They're being transformed into day-by-day Christians. The second way that they're being they're, they're becoming involved in a new lifestyle. It's an active lifestyle, but it's also a lifestyle that has a particular attitude. They, they receive food with glad and generous hearts. Friends, as we are together, as we interact with one another, we need to have generous hearts. You, you see, in every relationship, this is particularly so in marriage, because marriage is just human relationship under a microscope. In every relationship, There is the expectation of what that relationship will be like on one hand, and there is the experience of what it is in reality on the other hand. And in the middle, there is a gap. There's a gap between expectation and experience of a relationship. And we are called to choose to believe the best about one another rather than assuming the worst. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, when he says, love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins, but we choose to believe the best about one another. And lastly, it's active. It's, there's an attitude that comes with it. Generous hearts. And lastly, you'll notice that they had in verse 47, the favor of all the people. It's an attractive community as well. An active Christian, Christ-centered community that is busy praising God and loving one another will be attractive to our world around us. Friends, persecution is going to come later on in the book of Acts. And sometimes we think being attractive to the world means we have to conform to the world. It means we have to see, well, what do people want? How can we provide that sort of supply and demand? That's not what, what, what Luke is saying here. It is attractive because when a church is wholly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and devoted to one another, man, our world is hungry for that. Have you noticed that? People are looking what to believe. They're searching for unity. We've had so many conversations in our society about unity and division in the last year. People are hungry for the unity that only the Spirit can give. We ought to be attractive, an attractive, peace-filled, joy-filled community that has purpose because of what we believe that belong to each other. There's a sense of community and it's being transformed by the Spirit at work in our lives. Really practically, when you meet, we're still getting to know one another. We ought to be able to look around at one another and say, I know how that person met Jesus. I know how that, I've heard their story. They've heard my story. Because friends, just like when we come to the table together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come from different backgrounds. We have different experiences. We have different church backgrounds, perhaps. But the thing that unites all of us is who? Say it again? Yes. 
It's Jesus. However different we might be, it's Jesus. And so friends, my challenge to you is slowly, as you talk to people, as they're talking to me, hey, tell me how you met Jesus. I really want to know. I want to know what he's done in your life. And it's really simple. There's three things that should, you should involve in your testimony. How you used to be. What, what changed? How Jesus saved you. That moment when you knew, yes, I'm his. And what was different afterwards? What you used to be like, how he saved you, and what you're like now. Ask another about that. Today, going forward, in the next year, let's share our stories because that's the thing that unites us. As we close, there's a lot of conversation around these words, believing and belonging. I don't know if you are familiar with any of that, but sometimes we talk about in the church, does someone need to believe before they can belong to the local church, or do they have to belong and then believe? Does that make sense? Start coming and attending church. You don't know if you believe in Jesus yet, but you start coming and you have community to, to an extent with people. And then at some point, oh, you believe. And I've got friends who became Christians in that way. They were attracted by the community, the belonging of the Baha'i need that. But actually, as they were with those people, that body of Christians, they started to believe as well. And I know the opposite. Someone believes and then they join and they belong. Start belonging to a local church. And my suggestion to you this morning is twofold. The first is that believing and belonging what don't necessarily have an order. It could be one or the other. But they always precede becoming. What I mean is this. People who call themselves Christians, nominal Christians, but aren't living it out, or just sitting in a chair, pew warmers, won't become. There's no transformation there. And the same as those who believe without belonging, solitary Christians. If you're not part of a local body of believers, you won't become, you won't be transformed into the image of Jesus either. Becoming is dependent on belonging and believing. Becoming is dependent upon belonging and That's why we want to be a church that's made up of spirit-filled disciples who believe and belong and are being are becoming like Jesus. And that's the challenge for us. This one, that's the challenge for me. That's the challenge for each one of us, is we want to be a believing, belonging, becoming congregation. We want to be believing, belonging, becoming disciples. Is that true of you?